Hello and welcome to another episode of the Looking After Nature podcast, bringing you closer to nature and wildlife in Hampshire. My name is Andy Davidson. I'm here once again with my co-host and fellow ranger, Carly Harrod. Hi, Carly. Hi, Andy. So today we're out and about and not sat at our computers recording, which is brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? And it's the fact that we were hoping it wasn't going to rain. It's just spitting a bit, but it's lovely to be out. You'll probably be hearing a bird song behind us as we record as well, which would be really nice. Hopefully, although it is starting to rain a little bit heavier. It's a lovely place, right? We're at Abbotson Down. Um, there's big open areas of grass here, and hopefully we'll be looking around as we, as we talk and seeing what we can find here. So at the moment, we are stood in a field, but it's a very, very lumpy field. It looks slightly alien-like, and that's because there's hundreds of anthills i can literally see hundreds of anthills and that's a really good sign isn't it andy yeah it is it's probably a bit more diverse than your average field because there's loads of different plant species here so we're not here on our own are we andy we've got some guests with us today yeah we've got two guests today you've got nikki and we've also got Gemma, and we'll be talking to them later so we're joined here today by nikki court hi nikki hi andy Thank you for having me out here. My first site visit of the year. It's fantastic to be out, isn't it? It's yeah. nice to see you other than in an office or on a screen. In front of a screen. Yeah, that's where I've been most of the time. So although you work for Hampshire County Council, you're not in the same department as us, are you? Can you tell us about your job? Yeah, so I've been with the County Council quite a few years, more than I care to mention, but we're in the economy transport and environment department what used to be the old county planning department actually so i work with a whole bunch of what we call specialists ecologists archaeologists and environmental impact assessment people so we deal mainly with county council developments wrote new roads um, schools etc and and do all the advice for that and we also advise a lot of the district councils as well on their on the impact of planning applications so we're pretty busy and i also for my sins manage the hampshire biodiversity information center which we established about 20 years ago uh, fully partnership led steering group we like to think we're pretty independent from the county council um, so a lot of our funding comes from all our partners yeah, that keeps, keeps, keeps us busy. So you say you clearly work in partnership, that's with local authorities and uh, wildlife trusts and people like that? Yeah, it? we've got, um, Hampshire's got two national parks, of course, which is quite unusual for a county. So we work with the national parks, we've got about 13 district councils, the unitaries, all the key species groups, the major species groups, because HBIC really is about data in and data out. And we sort of do the, the management bit in the middle. But it's about getting data in and then it goes out to inform you know all sorts of projects and schemes and developments etc and obviously working with the public as well and the local community groups that, that's quite important as well so the data really you're talking about is about the plants and the animals and the habitats and all that right across hampshire isn't it and the isle of wight we don't cover the isle of wight they've got their own got their own biological record center and we do work with them we sort of work together as a southeast community so we all um, support each other with best practice and joining forces when we need to update software and stuff so we're not all completely reinventing the wheel so a good relationship with all our surrounding record centres. As we said we're here at Abs and Down but this isn't a, a site of special scientific interest that's a difficult one to say definitely um, but it is very important for local biodiversity isn't it? Yes and it's designated as a site of importance for nature conservation which is the next tier down from a site of special scientific interest but in fact a lot of our sinks as that's shortened to support habitats of equivalent value to SSIs it's just SSIs are just the best examples of in the county so we've got a lot of very important sinks but they're also you could, yes they are of county importance as well so most of them will support a priority habitat or a notable species or species populations assemblages and stuff so we've got about 
4,000 in the county now. We've been doing this, the evaluation of all the data to um, come up with the sinks um, for 25 years now. Um, and we have, it's not just HBIC, HBIC evaluate the data, but put it forward to a panel. So we've got Natural England, the Wildlife Trust and the County Council that all have to agree when we put forward new sites. But we also review sites because obviously some change or they get degraded or lost through planning. You know, they're not meant to be, but um, so it's so over a year we put about 100 sites to the panel for um, evaluation for agreement. So, yeah, it's all a, it's quite a slick process now. So, as you said, we're in a... Well, Carly called it a field, but it's a lovely grassy area uh, with uh, these anthills. Um, and I mean, it's called Abbotston Down, but quite often I think of Downland as massive big areas, where well, this is just a tiny little patch left here, isn't it? Yeah, when you look on the old um, 1870s map, Abbotston Down was huge and it's slowly wooded up over time. So you've got these little relic patches left. And obviously the work that's been going on here for the past, well, I, I have been coming here for 20 years, you know, the clearing the scrub back, getting it back to being grazed is what's important. Chalk Downland is such a rare habitat now and they're all very isolated patches. So I know there's a few bits dotted about, but I mean, the nearest decent area of Chalk Downland now, I would say would be at Winchester, Magdalen Hill Down, um, between here and there, and that's six miles. Yeah. We've just got the odd little patch along a lane or, um, you know, glades in woodlands. There's a patch over in the woodland um, next to this site. Um, and of course, butterflies and that, they, they can't disperse more than a kilometre or so, maximum, most species. So these small relic patches are extremely important in conserving what we've got, but also acting as refuges for hopefully the days when we can expand these sites or you know start to put in stepping stones or corridors with other landowners just because we need to imp uh, enhance and increase their their size and this is what we sometimes call fragmentation it's the same yes. with heathland and woodlands where they get broken up over yeah. time um, and the bits in between are poorer in diversity aren't they yeah so we're seeing a real decline in a lot of species because they can't um, they haven't got the habitat to support them any longer. They're just contained into these small sites. They can't disperse. And also with climate change, um, they're pushing their tolerance levels. So with hotter summers and, and more stream, extreme events, they're finding it harder to cope on these small sites. So we've got to start doing what um, the government have said in their 25-year environment plan, which is about building bigger, better, more of, more joined up, and uh, managing better what we've got. So those are sort of the, sort of the principles of what we're trying to do now that we're looking at um, our ecological network mapping, which HBIC have been developing and it's being taken up by all the district councils. So an ecological network map is where we've identified all the core habitats that are still remaining. This is the national designations, the sinks, other bits of priority habitat. Um, and then we're looking at what the opportunity is to ex to expand those sites, make them bigger, join them up. And we're hoping this will happen through um, local authorities will be mandated soon to um, have biodiversity net gain as part of a planning application. So if you put in a planning application for housing development and you've only got a small amount of biodiversity on that site, you're expected to put 10% more back to get approval for your planning application because it's not just about maintaining what we've got. We've got to increase the government are really committed to this increasing what we've got because that's the only way you're going to slow the decline down the decline will keep continuing otherwise with a lot of these species and then the other thing of course is changing the way farmers uh, manage their land so rather than just being paid to do 
certain bits around the edges of fields and putting new bits of woodland it's a whole scale change to the way they're going to look at their land to and they'll get paid more for doing biodiversity than they will probably for the basic payments they get anyway the subsidies they get so we're hoping that scheme will also be informed by our ecological network map as it will show where are the best places to reconnect habitats put in new wildlife corridors put in new margins along fields and hopefully build biodiversity back up yes yeah, so the campsite service i think he's been pretty successful in managing bits you know our special sites and we've got 80 across the county and most yeah. of them well pretty much all of them have got some sort of designation yeah um but i think the future is getting it the the wildlife back out of these special places into the wider countryside, isn't it? Yeah, getting it connected back up because Abbotstone is a real example here of how isolated a real important piece of chalk downland is. You know, we've got such tiny fragments around that we really we should now be looking at opportunities with landowners where we can create some sort of strips or connections or even, I mean, if you look at the old map of Abbotstone down, the old, what was the, the common, um, there are all sorts of fields around this area which mm. would be ideal for helping to connect up some of these um, important habitats. And clearly working as we said is in partnership is the only way we can do it because we, yep. you know, we can't take on all the land and it's working yep. with the, the landowners, the farmers, the other wildlife trusts and the other organisations to really get that back out isn't it? Yes and also what we call farm clusters now are, are really taking hold in Hampshire where you're getting groups of farmers taking sort of ownership of because it has to be at the landscape scale they can't just do it they've got to look across into their neighbor's land as well so whole um, farm clusters are where farmers are getting together and facilitating with them with each other what they can do to join up their habitats so we talked about wildlife corridors and stepping stones because i think some people i remember having a conversation with somebody on a site once suggesting that uh, you know we need to take it down a bit of wood to connect up to um bits of heathland as a wildlife corridor and they said he's got the path there haven't they um, <laughs> but clearly wildlife don't think in the same way so a, cor a wildlife corridor can be like a physical connection like a strip of woodland or a hedgerow can't it yeah yeah, yeah hedge, hedge even a footpath if it's wide enough and it's and you've got nice edges mm. will act as a corridor you know some of our long distance footpaths i think are superb for connecting sites to each other um I mean, we've, we've surveyed some of them. We know how good for habitats they are. Um, so, yeah, hedgerows, woodland strips, looking even at um, streamside planting as well to help bring um, connectivity along there if they're quite exposed. But with stepping stones, it might be, for example, you've got a really flower-rich area here, but there might be another flower-rich over the top of the wood, you know, um, a few hundred metres away or a half a kilometre. But it's these distances, it's, these, it's miles to the next yes. moment it's the problem, isn't it? Yeah, a lot of species can't even travel more than, you know, some species can't even travel more than a few centimetres or metres, but usually we're saying a kilometre is a minimum you'd need really for most, most species just to be able to hop over to. And of course it all depends on what the habitat is in between as well. Uh, you know, roads act as a barrier, you know, perhaps more green bridges is what we need. You know, you see on the continent some fantastic um, green bridges, um, but also, um, you know, some, some butterflies can't actually cross an arable field. Um, or a woodland might might be in the way, but you've, you've got to look at how you. Um, but it's it's really down to I think the margins are what are important. The margins of hedgerows, the margins of fields, that's where you get all your insects. That's where you get all your biomass. And if you've got all the insects, then that will bring in the birds. It will it will create the suitable microclimates for butterflies to travel along. Um, a lot of small mammals. So I think personally, I think it's, it's a lot of it's about the hedgerow margins and the field margins not being so tidy, not being so neat, not spraying right up to the edge. And of course that will then help with things like um, 
at the moment a lot of our road verges which you know it's a fantastic resource there for flowers if it wasn't for the fact that agricultural runoff comes straight down onto the verge from the farmer's field because he hasn't got a, a margin in so you know that's that's destroying biodiversity on our road verges as much as we want to try and cut them at the right time of year and stuff they're just getting soaked in uh, fertilizers because that's the thing they're they're pushed out to the margins a lot of these um fields you know these grassy fields that are still existing yeah they've been what is termed improved but that's in agricultural terms yeah uh, but improved and they're normally just one or two species of ryegrass or the ryegrass and white clover yeah um and those those flower-rich bits, you know, where there's red clover and scabious and mm. all, the, um, all these other flowering plants are just squeezed to the road verges in a lot of places, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, road verges are literally the relic bits of meadow that we used to have um, across the county. I think 90, 95% of all meadows have been lost in, in the UK that we know of. So we're just talking about tiny patches. That um, And there's a lot of good work being done where you can take the, the green hay off a meadow and transfer it over to... Uh, a new site with some success and uh, Magling Hill Down I know which is outside Winchester is a butterfly conservation reserve that was arable 15 years ago mm. it's now been designated a sink because after 15 years it's it's developed all the right communities it was um, reseeded correctly and it's now a brilliant piece of chalk downland habitat so it can be done we can restore um, but but preferably I mean that site is right next to an existing piece of grassland which is what you want of downland it's best if you do if you re restore all these habitats as close as you can to where there is there is already something similar to help with the colonisation. So something mm. like this, the fact you know you can take you were talking about taking green hay across, and that takes the seeds across, yep. which takes the plants. Yeah. But the thing is, you can't take the insects really. No. You know they. I mean, we've done um, some, the north end of this site. We've taken quite a few trees out um, to try and get the grass them back. And there's because I was doing some survey work last year where I found particular bees which are specialist on chalk grassland in this area mm. and actually i did go and look at the new clearance up there and although that isn't chalk grassland yet some of these bees were already up there yeah so they can find it if they have the opportunity can't they yeah if they can move around they'll look for the right for the right um conditions and uh, hopefully the, the, the plants and insects will marry up at some point so it's really been over the last sort of 30 40 50 years that all a lot of these declines have come in hasn't it but um I think there's a lot of opportunities now and I think I'm feeling quite optimistic about improvement now because we've got some of these government things coming in, haven't we? Yeah, I think so. With the, with the, with the um, DEFRA 25-year plan, it sets out very, very strong targets and commitments, not only on biodiversity but other things on pollution and waste and stuff. But, you know, there's a commitment there to build back nature. So we've got, you know, we're developing nature recovery maps, um, planning applications requiring a net gain in biodiversity is going to be mandatory you know who'd have thought that 10 years ago that um you know developers now have to put back more wildlife than was on the site originally um, but, and that will help with um you know building in the green infrastructure so people have got places more more green areas to go it'll help with the climate change um, agenda because we're putting back more carbon basically and it will help um, you know all this all the benefits from biodiversity on air quality you know helping with with um, flooding as well you've got places you know you can create more wetland areas for flooding so it's not just going straight out onto the roads and down into the rivers so a lot of benefits to building more biodiversity back there's a lovely term called nature-based solutions which yes. i quite like yes and it's the fact that you know because you, you've got these flower-rich places, you've got pollinators for the crop. Uh, and where you've got good vegetation next to rivers, it stops um, silt washing into the rivers. Yep. 
um, and all these trees and grasslands as well sequester carbon. Yeah. So that's probably the thing to think think about the fact that nature delivers all these things. Yeah. So we have to improve that to try and um, make the place much better, don't we? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks, Nikki. It's been really good to see you on site, and it's really interesting some of the stuff we're talking about here. Um, and again, as we said, it's nice to see you when it's not on a screen or in an office and out actually in the field. Yeah, thank you, Andy. It's been lovely seeing you too, having me out here. And um, yeah, it's exciting times, I hope. So we are also joined today by Gemma, who works as a community engagement ranger for the Rights of Way team. Hi, Gemma. Hi, Carly. How are you? I'm good. And it's so nice to be out in the sun. And the it is come out. actually sunshiny now. We get to do our bit. And not raining. <laughs> so what are rights of way then? So rights of way literally mean the right to pass and repass. So we have different types of rights of way throughout the whole country, actually, um, such as footpaths, bridleways, restricted byways and byways open to all traffic. Basically, all of those allow different users to connect and enjoy to our countryside. And rights of way are great for getting out and about and, as you say, enjoying the countryside. But they're also really good connectors for habitats, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. So on a lot of rights of way, you'll find things like hedgerows. So hedgerows provide a really important link to fragmented or isolated pockets environments, such as woodland. Our rights of way team assists landowners and parishes in managing those hedgerows to ensure that our users of the rights of way can get to them safely. We manage the hedgerows, though, in a really mindful way, such as avoiding disturbance during bird nesting season. Um, we also manage a large group of volunteers who act as path wardens, so they basically keep an eye on the vegetation growth because we just have such a large area to cover. So there are eyes and ears, as it were, for the rights of way. And how many miles of rights of way do we have in Hampshire? So there are 2,800 miles of Hampshire's public rights of way, which is huge. Um, and that network includes urban and rural paths, basically forms the backbone of the countryside access network. So we have quite a few long distance routes as well, which are brilliant connectors. And we have some like the Wayfarers Walk, the Test Way, and we also have the Hangers Way. Mm -hmm. Why are hedgerows so important to our rights of way network? So on our rights of way, we have many hedgerows. Um, basically, these hedgerows are really important for species, including birds, insects and mammals for various reasons. And Nikki did touch on this earlier, but they act as wildlife corridors. So um, they're really important because animals can travel under the cover um, of a safe hedgerow to different feeding grounds or territories, not in the view of possible predators. So it's a safe place for them to access. Also, our hedgerows offer nesting sites and places for foraging and food sources. So you can see a lot of life just along a simple hedgerow. And they're brilliant, aren't they? I love a good hedgerow. I think they're so pretty. There's so much to see in there. If you just stop and listen and you're quiet for a few minutes, all the activity comes back. And yeah. I think that's really important, actually, to bear in mind when you are walking. Try and find a moment to stop and be quiet and just listen. And then all the animals start coming back to life because you, you've stayed quiet. So we've been stood here for quite a while now and the birds are definitely starting to sing more. They're mm -hmm. coming nearer to us. Yeah, I've noticed a few robins prancing around because they're quite brave, aren't they, robins? Yeah. And it's just beautiful, isn't it? Absolutely. Just... And I think it's really important that we um, consider urban uh, rights of way as well as rural because a lot of people think all the excitement happens on a rural rights of way. But actually there is a lot to see now in our towns and cities and certain urban rights of way, especially if you're by a canal, for example, by a water source. But equally, again, you know, you could get so many mammals now who are brave in it in our urban territories, like foxes. You know, you do hear of people seeing foxes out and about on urban routes. So yeah. I think that's really important to bear in mind that all, not all the action happens out in the countryside. It also happens near where we live as well. Definitely. I live right in the middle of Southampton. I do have a nice big hedge along my 
property because I live right next to the railway line. Mm -hmm. But that hedge is full of biodiversity. I've got hedgehogs that come in my garden. Mm -hmm. I've got all the birds. I've got stag beetles and it's brilliant. And I live right in the middle of Southampton. Yeah, yeah, I'm in Andover and we have a hedgehog visit our garden quite frequently and all sorts of birds. The other day I even had a greater spotted woodpecker on my bird feeder, which was pretty cool actually, first time I've spotted it. But I think it just proves the point that um, there's so much to see actually on our doorstep sometimes you don't have to get in your car and travel or go on a super long walk through the countryside sometimes we have it in our urban areas as well yeah definitely well thank you so much for talking to us today Gemma I hope you've enjoyed coming out to Abbotston absolutely first time here I'll be back that's brilliant thanks Carly so Andy we're here at Abbotston Down and we said earlier we can see all these amazing lumpy things on the grass. Yeah. What are they? Ant hills. So, what sort of ants live in these ant hills? Well, let's have a look. We might. It's a bit cold, but sometimes if you poke the top, <laughs> you sometimes get the ants coming out. But I think it's a little bit cold. They're right down in the bottom of the ground. So, Andy, how are these mounds formed? Well, it starts out because um, a queen ant will turn up and start her nest. So basically she'll go on the flat ground and then she'll start laying her eggs underneath. She'll be underneath the ground. She'll start laying her eggs and all the workers start hatching out from her eggs. And they slowly excavate underneath the ground and they bring up bits of little soil. Because you can look in here, look, it's all like very, very fine, isn't it? Mm. They bring up little bits onto the top and slowly over time that forms the mound. Now these are, well, they're over a foot across and probably eight inches tall, aren't they? Mm. So some of them are even bigger. Yeah, they look bigger, don't they? Yeah. So over time, that sort of loose soil forms the mound and then you get all these plants on the top. And with it being really fine soil like that, it's really quite dry and warm on the top. Which is why you can see there's different plants on the top sometimes as to down there. Hmm. So I love looking at anthills because one of my favourite things to find is green woodpecker poo. Right. And I like finding it because you can show it to kids, it's quite dry, and when you break it up, it's just full of little bits of ants. Yeah, because they like eating ants, don't they? You find them on your lawns quite often, and they're digging out the ants, and they pretty, well, not tote just ants, but it's a major bit of their diet is ants. Mm -hmm. Probably because ants give out formic acid, um, which is basically smells of vinegar, so they must like that on their food, vinegar Ah. on their food. Like fish and chips? Yes. (laughs) So say you do find different plants on the top. So on these ones we've got, they're not flowering yet, but these leaves I think are rock rose. Mm -hmm. But sometimes if you squash them a bit, you get these little leaves. No, it's not really, you get thyme, Mm -hmm. wild thyme on the top, which are really fragrant. And it's not just ants and plants and green woodpeckers that like ants hills is it they're also many other species use them yeah it gets really complicated because i was out here last year recording a lot of insects i was hoping to see some today but it is far too cold and actually it's a later year because it's we've had all these frosts yeah it's delayed a lot of things um but there's a type of hoverfly called a yellow marked hoverfly um which is a specialist on ant hills and chalk grassland and it's thought that they're young they're larvae are inside the ant nests. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is getting complicated. They're, they're feeding on the aphids, like the green flies, 
that live on the roots inside the anthills. And the ants tend the aphids because they get honeydew from them. Okay. <laughs> so it's a very complex um, interplay of species, isn't it? It is, yes. And also because you get the blue butterflies on here, you know, mm -hmm. the, the um, common blues. But there's also, it's really weird, the brown argus. Which is, which a, is a blue. Which is a blue, but it's brown. Um, <laughs> and the caterpillars of those who go into these nests and where, it's where they form their chrysalis. The ants quite often take them in there because I think the, 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 the chrysalis, the cocoon, smells like an ant. Mm -hmm. So they'll take them in and they'll spend the winter inside there, fully protected by all these ants, like yeah. in a fort, and then they'll come out and emerge in the spring. I think they're amazing. Yeah. So coming into a field like this with this many ant hills, it's a sign that this field has not been disturbed for a very long time, isn't it? Well, that's it. Clearly, if you'd been ploughing this or cutting the grass over the top, you'd have destroyed all these anthills. Um, so this is a sign that I mean, it probably has taken decades to mm -hmm. get this big. And we manage it by grazing. So the cattle that we use here will eat around and on the tops. Um, but as long as we control the numbers, they won't destroy the anthill itself. Whereas if I took a big mower across this, it would wipe all this out. It would. So... Andy, I don't have a fun fact for this month, do you? In fact, I do, yes. There's a species of solitary bee on here called a red-tailed mason bee, mm -hmm. which nests in old snail shells. Okay. So it finds an old snail shell tucked in the grass somewhere, and it will it makes its cells by chewing up bits of leaf. Mm -hmm. So it'll make a little cell in there with its, with its egg on a load of pollen mm -hmm. in there, and then they'll seal up the cell, and then they thatch it with <laughs> bits of grass okay so they'll go searching all across here for little bits of grass and they'll go flying back sometimes i've seen an eight inch bit of grass being towed along <laughs> by a bee which is about it's like a tiny bumblebee yeah and they'll cover the entire snail shell in a thatch of bits of grass so they can thatch their houses that's really cool it's been great talking to nikki and Gemma today and we'd love to hear from you with any comments or thoughts or if there's anything else you'd like us to discuss in a future episode. You can let us know through our social media pages. We are at Hampshire's Countryside Service. And we'd really appreciate it if you'd rate and review our podcast on iTunes as this helps other people find us. And in the meantime, don't forget to check out our social media pages for relevant updates. For now, thanks again for listening. I'm Andy Davidson. And I'm Carly Harrod. See you next time.